Scripture reading today is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verses 11 through 14, and it will be on page 850 in your pew Bible. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so, they are out, so that they are outwardly clean. But how much more, then, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. May God bless the reading of his word. This past week, I received a really great question from one of our members. And um, it was a question where they were wrestling with what appeared to be a a contradiction in the scripture. And it came from two different statements that were part of our study last week. And... um, And what I really appreciated was, first of all, is they wrestled with it on their own. And they went and tried to find some some resources and tried to get the answer. And and then it was still bothering them. And so they wrote to me, which made me wrestle with it, which was great. Um, And I want to say that as kind of an introduction, because I'm going to share the question with you in a moment, because maybe it's, it's something you've wrestled with. But I want you to know how much I appreciate those kind of questions. Um, don't be afraid to ask. I, I may not know the answer, but collectively, God has given us uh, wisdom. He's given us the direction of his word. And so we'll, we can wrestle through those questions. Here's, here's the, the two statements that were difficult for this particular person last week. Um, it focused on two statements that God makes about Moses. The scripture says about Moses. The first one is found in Exodus thirty-three eleven, And it says, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. But just a few verses later, it says in Exodus thirty-three twenty, You cannot see my face. This is God speaking to Moses. For man shall not see me and live. Now, on the surface, that seems like a contradiction, right? So it's a good thing to wrestle with. What does it mean? And, and part of the answer is found in understanding the word face. In Hebrew, the word face is actually very similar to the word face in English, where it can have many different meanings. Sometimes it can mean the literal face of a person, the, the part that we would see and we recognize someone by. But sometimes, in fact, often it is either figurative or it can refer to the whole person as who they are. Now, here's the the great thing about the scripture, is the scripture tends to interpret itself when we look at other verses that deal with the same subject. So the second one is actually um, brought forth again in the book of John, in John 1, verses 17 and 18. Here's what it says. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him known. So he's making it clear that no one has seen the fullness or the face of God from that standpoint of who he truly is. And there's reasons for that. 
Jesus came to make God known to us because on our own, we can only see a glimpse of God uh, because if we were to see the fullness of who he is, the truth is because of our sin, we would be destroyed. Because you and I um, are sinful, we're not pure, we're not perfect, we're not holy, we're not righteous, we can't go into the very presence of God. Today we're going to look at the tabernacle and, and it's, as we explore the tabernacle, we discover that the Holy of Holies, the mercy seat, the place where God visited his people, God had very specific rules about how the high priest could come into his presence because God didn't want to destroy the people or the high priest. And, and the reason being is the scripture tells us um, what the very presence of God, if we're to see a, even a glimpse of his fullness, this is what it says. Look at Exodus chapter 24, verse 17. This was the, the first introduction to a degree for uh, Israel of seeing the presence of the Lord. Exodus twenty four seventeen. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Sometimes, because we are more familiar with the incredible grace that Jesus brings, we forget about the holiness, the power, the righteousness of God. When it says here that his appearance was like a consuming or devouring fire, the best thing maybe in our uh, understanding that could match that, it's like it's being in the presence of a nuclear explosion. There is so much energy there in the holiness of God that if we were to step into it, we would be destroyed. Just as if I was to step into the, the presence of a nuclear reaction I would be destroyed because I'm not made to be in that presence. And the same is true with God, but because of our sin. So what does it mean when, when God said he spoke to Moses face to face as he does with a friend? Because again, it feels like a contradiction. Well, the great thing is the Bible answers that. I want you to look in your Bible at the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 12. And what's happening here is Moses' brother and sister, his older brother and his older sister, Aaron and, and Miriam, had pretty much gotten frustrated with Moses. You know, Moses had this unique role in leadership, and, and he was the one meeting with the Lord. And, and they got a little frustrated because the Lord was, was revealing things to them. They had a ministry to the people of Israel, and they got irritated with their brother. I'm sure this never happens in any of your homes. Um, we had four kids, and wow, it never, ever happened where they would get irritated with each other. Um, and see, why I can't stand in the presence of God is because I lied right from the pulpit. So there you go. But here, they're bringing their complaint against Moses to the Lord. And here's what the Lord answers. He says in verse 6, And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, 
clearly and not in riddles as he beholds the form of the Lord. So you see, he uses a different expression to clarify exactly what he's saying. When he says mouth to mouth or face to face, he's saying it's a conversation where Moses can hear the voice of God. It's just, it's not just a vision. It's not a dream. It's not an impression. He is hearing the voice of God. He is speaking back and they're having a conversation. That's exactly what he means when he says face to face. He's conversing with Moses. So does that help answer that question? There really isn't a contradiction. It's just a way that we use the phrase. And, and I encourage you, when you wrestle, when you come to things that seem like they're a contradiction, keep looking. Keep looking and, and, and we're happy to help you in any way. But one thing you can do is do a search, you know, for other words that are like that and see how it comes out See what the Lord reveals in his own scripture that helps you to answer that question. Well, we've been exploring um, the tabernacle. And, and here's the really good news. Because what we just read is we can't see the face of God because of our sin. And that's kind of disappointing. But there's great hope. I want you to look at one verse before we start to look at the, at the um, tabernacle. 1 John chapter 3 gives us the hope for all of us at the resurrection. It says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that he purifies himself as he is pure. One day, at the resurrection, at the return of Jesus Christ, we will see the face of God. And when we see him in that state where we're no longer contaminated by sin, at the transformation that happens at the resurrection, both for the living and the dead, we'll be able to step into the presence of God and see the fullness of who he really is. That promise should prompt us to live with hope and to live lives that are pure because we are looking forward to seeing who he is. All right. Well, in our series, Move Closer, uh, I've been trying to look at some different themes and different patterns that are in the scripture that show us how we are to grow in intimacy with God. And the tabernacle that we have in the wilderness is a huge event because it is God's choice to step closer to us. The tabernacle, because we're so far removed from it and we're removed to a large degree from understanding um, what happened both in the tabernacle and the temple as far as worship, it, it seems foreign to us. But it was a huge deal. In fact, there are 50 chapters of the Bible that deal with the tabernacle and the temple. And the rules and regulations that God had concerning its construction, worship within it, the utensils, the furnishings that are used, every detail God went to great length to describe for us. So it's incredibly important to him and here's why. Exodus chapter 25 verses 8 and 9. This is the whole reason why the tabernacle existed. And let them make me, this is God speaking, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. 
exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. Right here we see the desire of God's heart was the desire he had at the very beginning. When we look back into the Garden of Eden, what did God do with Adam and Eve? He chose to dwell with them, to walk with them in the cool of the day, to have them be in his presence. That's what you and I were made for. But because we chose, uh, we rebelled in Adam and in Eve, and since then we've all confirmed it, where we want to say we are the ones who determine what is right and wrong, we therefore are, are sinful. We're outside of God's um, uh, righteousness and holiness. Because of that, we've lost that intimacy. We've lost that communion. But God has moved closer. And the tabernacle was the first huge step. When he's saying this, this is the first time in thousands of years that God was going to dwell with the people. Now, he had appearances. He, he um, walked with Enoch, we read in the, in the Old Testament. He spoke in, in either uh, out loud or in a vision to Noah to tell him how to build the ark. Um, and he certainly had spoken to Moses. But now he's saying, I want to dwell with you. This is God's heart for us. And so he um, shows a, a pattern in the re revelation of the tabernacle that is designed so that people can know how to approach a holy God. And let me encourage you with this. Everything in the tabernacle points to something greater. It ultimately points to Jesus Christ. The scripture that Jim read for us just a little while ago in the book of Hebrews tells us that the tabernacle was an earthly pattern, a shadow of heavenly things. That it pointed to the very throne room of God, to the presence of God, and ultimately pointed to Jesus Christ. And so this week and next week, we're going to look at the structure of the tabernacle and see how it points to Jesus and that's important because it's not just history, but it's important because it's going to help us see ways that we can better connect with Christ and learn to dwell in God's presence. Now, the tabernacle itself was a portable tent that had a wooden uh, framework. I have some pictures that you can put up on the screen there. And also, if you receive the ICP newsletter, I put in um, two different videos this week in the newsletter. One gives you kind of an introduction of, of the tabernacle, and the, and the other one is, is, a, is a tour, basically, of there is a life-size model now of the tabernacle in Timnah, Israel. And, and it's a video that just takes you through and lets you see what it would have been like thousands of years ago to, to be a part of that presence, um, that tabernacle. Now, the one thing that's missing in the model is the presence of God. So the most important thing, the whole reason why it was constructed, is missing. But here in the tabernacle, what you'll see first is you see there's this white fence. That's the, the outer court. And it's held up by, uh, by poles that are covered in uh, covered in gold, and then between them are curtains of white linen. 
And everything about the tabernacle has significance. God is incredibly detailed in the description of what it's all about. Here in the, in the courtyard, in the outside part, you had uh, the gate, the door where it's blue and red and purple at the, at the front. And then you have the altar, which is where the sacrifices were made. And then next up, you have the bronze basin. Those are the items that are in the courtyard. And, and as we begin to, to look at this, all of them have incredible significance. But the first thing that you see is that there's a barrier. This white fence was a reminder of the fact that God is holy. We can't just rush into his presence. In the same way, I've learned that it's important for me to, especially at times, to prepare my heart before I rush into the Lord's presence in prayer. There are times when we just, we just cry out with our heart, Lord, help me, save me. But there are other times where we really need to remember whose presence we're coming into. Remember his holiness. Think about what we want to say to him. If you and I were given an audience with a, a significant leader, maybe it's the president of a country or Queen Elizabeth from, uh, from the UK, if we had that kind of privilege, that kind of opportunity, chances are you wouldn't just wing it. You'd think about what you want to say before you come into their presence. How much more important when we come into the presence of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We need to remember His holiness. Now, the tabernacle, which simply means a, a dwelling place or a tent, ultimately is, is a picture, as I said, that points to Jesus. And here I want, to see, I want you to see the first connecting point. Because remember, in Exodus chapter 24, God says, make me a sanctuary because I want to dwell with them. But look what it says in the beginning of the gospel in the book of John. John chapter 1, verse 14. This is speaking of Jesus Christ with his title as the Word. And the Word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The tabernacle was pointing to the fact that one day God would come and dwell with us. And his first step in the tabernacle was to meet Israel where they were. The people of Israel were wandering in a wilderness. They were living in tents. So it makes absolutely perfect sense that God would choose a tent for his own dwelling place. He moved into their presence. Later on, after Israel became a settled nation and, and, and there was peace for the most part in the land, then God um, put it upon the heart of David that was then fulfilled by his son Solomon to build a more permanent structure, the temple. But the furnishings, the functioning of the tabernacle and the temple are basically the same. But God moved closer in the city. He set up a permanent place that was there. But it all was pointing to the fact that one day God would choose to dwell among us as a human. Fully God, but fully human. He dwelt among us. God came to us so that we, people from all nations, could come to a relationship with God through faith and once again experience the presence of God. That's really what the tabernacle was about. 
You see, you see, there's three great themes that we see in the scripture. The people of God, the place of God, and the presence of God. And God begins to expand the people of God where he gives a promise to Abraham that he and his descendants will be those who are the people of God. But he gives a promise even to Abraham that through you all the nations will be blessed. That was always his plan for each and every one of us. The place of God has moved closer and closer. It was a tabernacle, then a temple, then it was a, the city of Jerusalem. And now what is so beautiful is the place of God now is that he dwells in the temple of the heart of every believer. That's his dwelling place. And he does that because he wants you and I to experience and enter his presence. He has rules and conditions, but his desire is for you and I to connect with him. So everything about this is for that purpose, ultimately. The tabernacle provided a model that revealed the requirements for coming to God. But it is a shadow of the true picture. Here's what it says in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 5 and 6. They serve a copy and shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted with better promises. And what that means is God keeps stepping closer to us. How beautiful it is. All right. So we see this courtyard and if you were to read through, um, especially Exodus chapter 24 through 40. Now, we're, it's a snow day, which means things are slower. But I'm not going to read those many chapters to you. Just relax. So don't, don't worry. I'm not going to do that. But in there, God gives all these details about the tabernacle. And everything about it is significant. Even the colors that he chooses. So let me start with that. He, he gives instruction about every, everything that's in there and he uses a pattern of colors that point to something. First of all, there are many things that are made of gold and wherever you see something in the tabernacle that is made of gold, it's a reminder of God's deity, of his sovereignty, that he is king, um, that he alone is God. Silver in the, in the tabernacle is a picture of redemption. And the reason that it is, is because there was a price that each person had to pay for redemption because it was pointing to the, to the fact that we all needed to be bought back from our sin. And it even points to the silver that Judas received as a, a, as a ransom to betray Jesus Christ. Silver is always in the scripture, a picture of redemption. Now beyond that, we see bronze or brass. In the picture of the, of the tabernacle, bronze is a symbol of judgment. Basin or red is a reminder of the price that must be paid for sin, which is the sacrifice of blood. Fine linen, like the outer walls of the tabernacle, 
are a reminder of righteousness, that God is holy. That's why the, even in the, um, what God designed for the high priest, there is a, a white robe covered in a, with a, and a white headpiece to remind him of the holiness of God. And then he's covered with a, a blue, what's called ephod. It's kind of like a vest that goes over him. It's a reminder that he's entering into the presence of heaven. Everything about the priestly garments as well and all their colors um, all point to truths about God that point ultimately to Jesus. Then many of the curtains that overlap that actually make the tent are made of goat's hair. It's a reminder of atonement, that a price had to be paid, that, that animals were being sacrificed in order to draw people into God's presence. The Achaia wood, and I, I forgot to put this picture in, um, it says all of the things that were made, um, the Ark of the Covenant, the, um, the poles that are used, are made out of a wood that's fairly common in Israel called Achaia. But here's what's kind of significant about Achaia. It's also known as the thorn tree. And when you look at it, when you see its branches, it's covered with thick thorns. And I believe that's significant because what happened to the earth when it was placed under subjection because of humanity's sin, instead of just being, bringing forth lush vegetation, it also brought forth weeds, thorns, and thistles. It's a picture of of how God is ultimately going to redeem all of creation. And he chooses that wood specifically to be a part of his tabernacle. And then everything is an, that is prepared is anointed with oil because it's a reminder that it is holy and it's the presence of the Holy Spirit. So those, those are things that are kind of all within uh, the picture of the tabernacle. But the outer court itself represents both salvation and judgment. The two pieces of furniture in the outer courts are the bronze altar and the bronze basin speak both of judgment, the price required for sin, and cleansing for sin. And the outer court is a picture of Jesus Christ. It's a wall made of pure linen curtains separating uh, the outer court from the camp, from the people. Christ Jesus came in his righteousness. He's absolutely sinless. And through, he faced every temptation known to man, yet without sin. He dwelt in our presence and yet remained, remained absolutely pure. That outer part represents the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That he alone, because he's the only one who is sinless, could be our way to God. And those walls uh, of the white linen remind us of God's righteousness, of his holiness, and that we can't go in. But the great news is, the good news, is that God provided a door, a gateway into his presence. That outer court was a reminder of the law. It was a reminder that none of us can measure up. Inside the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies was a copy uh, of the tablet, or excuse me, was the tablets that God had given to Moses, reminding them of the of requirements of the law. But even the people who couldn't see the Ark of the Covenant were reminded of the law because of that wall. It was a wall they could not cross because we can't be sinless. Someone had to come out for us, 
in order for us to come in to God. And that's what Jesus has done. That wall was 2.3 meters high all the way around the tabernacle. But in front of it, um, and, and it's a reminder, excuse me, of Isaiah 59.2. It says this, But your iniquities, or sin, have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. We have to always remember when we're coming to God's presence that he is holy. When you and I wrestle with something that God says that we, we don't like, at some point we have to come to wrestle with the fact that he is God and we are not. And, say, and then look at how he has demonstrated his incredible grace and love and trust him, even with the things that are hard. Each person was confronted with the wall of God's righteousness at the tabernacle. In the same way today, each person needs to be confronted with the reality that God is holy. This is part of the work of the Holy Spirit. It says in John 16 that he comes to bring conviction of sin, conviction of judgment, and conviction of righteousness. He wants us to realize who God is so that we can then humble ourselves and trust in what he has done. And that brings us to the gate. Because God, in all of his goodness, knew that we could never get to him, so he provided a way for us to come into his presence. And the gate was beautiful. It was this tapestry that was woven with all of the different colors, with white, with, with purple, with red and blue, reminders of who God is and what he was doing. And this beautiful tapestry was, uh, that was the gate was always open. Anyone could go in, um, but you had to go in through the gate. You can't climb over the wall. You can't go underneath it. You have to go through the gate. And it's a picture, a reminder of how Jesus has revealed himself as the only entrance to God. In John 10, verse 1, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. And Jesus identified himself just a few verses later in saying in verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he will go in and out and find pasture. The gate itself is Jesus. The fine linen that is there in the gate points to his righteousness. The colors, the red, points to his sacrifice that he was willing to shed his blood for us. The purple points that he is a royal king, and he also has a, has a royal priesthood. The blue is a reminder that he is from heaven, that he dwells in God's presence. And, and it all points to this truth that we find in 1 Timothy verse 2, 5, and 6. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Now in our our very pluralistic modern culture. Um, we often hear, you know, something along the lines of, you know, all religions are the same. They all point to the same place. And there's a sense in which that is absolutely true. 
Because religion is a human attempt within our own strength, our own ability to make ourselves justified before God. And no religion, not even one that would appear to be Christian in its makeup, can enable us or empower us to do that. Because the distinction between what we see in religion and what we see in the scripture is not that we are able to earn our way to God, but that God himself has come for us. He has provided the way so that we could know him. And the truth is, if God is God, doesn't he have the right to be the one to determine how we approach him? He does. He absolutely does. This is why in John 14, 6, Jesus makes a statement that I believe points us right back to the tabernacle. It has many implications in, in many different ways, but it points us also to the tabernacle. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And that points us, I believe, to three sections of the tabernacle. The outer court, the holy place, and the holy of holies. And they're all distinct. I put a picture of them there in, in your, um, your notes. In the outer courtyard, that is all about finding salvation in Christ Jesus. And so that is the way to God. Jesus says, I am the way. And he's saying, you've got to come through the door. I'm the door for the sheep. And you come into this courtyard that is the entrance to God's presence and there you're met with two things. An altar of sacrifice and a basin of cleansing. And we'll look at those in just a moment. But the next section, as we move a little closer and actually come into the holy place, everything in there, which the, the furnishings there in there are the lampstand, the table of showbread, and the altar of incense, and they're all made of gold. They're a reminder that Jesus is the truth. That truth is not just a set of beliefs. Truth is a person. And that you're entering into the presence of God. But the most significant, the most beautiful, the most intimate is that last chamber where it is the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat sits. And that's where the presence of God dwells. That's where life is found. Jesus isn't just a way to God. He isn't just the truth of God. He is life that we find in him. It is the ultimate invitation for us to find life in his presence. And by the way, the word mercy seat is, which was, we'll look at next week, is really significant. And there's a, there's a theological term that's used in the scripture quite, uh, quite often in the New Testament. It's the word propitiation. But did you know that in, in Greek, the, the propitiation, that it actually means mercy seat. It means the place where God has made atonement for us to come into his presence. That's what the tabernacle is all pointing us to. And everything about it points that direction. The outer court is a reminder that there's judgment um, that's required by the law and, there, and that God provided a way 
where he paid the price of the judgment. The holy place is that Jesus came to show us the Father full of grace and truth, that we can be saved by God's grace, not by our goodness. And the holy of holies is Jesus' command for us to abide, to find life in him, to abide in his love, to dwell in his presence and allow his life to then flow through us. And that's living ultimately for God's glory. All those are found just in the initial look there at the tabernacle. Well, let's look at one more piece today, um, and that's the altar. And maybe if I'm really fast, we can do the altar and the basin together. The bronze altar um, tells us about this in Leviticus chapter 4, as well as other places. And it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them, if it is the... uh, the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. It was upon that altar of bronze that a sacrifice was made for sin. And we discover in the scriptures that even though um, there were hundreds and thousands and hundreds of thousands of animals that were sacrificed as a reminder that God's requirement for sin, the wages of sin, is death. And that something had to die in our place in order for us to be right with God. And that altar was always a reminder that the price of judgment, the wages of sin, has to be paid. For Israel... God gave them a foreshadowing of what he would do because he would take those innocent animals and provide them as a substitute for us, for the people of Israel. They were slaughtered there and and the priest would have to take some of the blood and put it on the horns of the the altar and then parts of it would be offered up and, and burnt before the Lord. It's a reminder that a price has to be paid. But it also points to Jesus. Jesus made this great statement in John 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. What he's saying is he was making the point that he was the Passover lamb, that he was the atonement that would be upon the altar that pointed ultimately to the cross who would offer his life as a ransom for many. You see, for Israel, they lived at a time when, unlike us, they didn't have their Bibles on their iPhone. And they didn't have the scripture with them all the time. And so God used these these real things as shadows to point them to the requirements of coming into his presence and what he would ultimately do for us. And people in the Old Testament were saved by faith just like we are. God's grace is exercised through our faith in believing that God would provide a way to buy us back. And that's what the altar points to. But the last piece, real, real quickly, that we'll look at today is the bronze basin. And I really, the bronze basin is so, so cool. Um, because it tells us 
in Exodus chapter 38, verse 8, that he made a basin of bronze and its stand of bronze from the mirrors of the ministering women who ministered at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Now, here's what was cool, is all the women of Israel brought their mirrors um, because they would have been made of, of brass or bronze, and they donated them for to make this basin. And what the basin was was uh, a, it was um, a, a large container that would hold water that was required for the priests going into the holy place to then wash their hands and wash their feet. But when you would look into the basin, you would not only see your reflection in the water; you would see your reflection there in the bronze basin itself. And that basin points us to um, baptism. The altar points us to the cross, which is where our salvation comes because Jesus took our place. But the basin points us to um, having a new identity in Christ. The basin didn't save anyone. Their salvation was because of the sacrifice. Just like baptism doesn't save us, but it changes us. That's why in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, it says, Buried with him in baptism, meaning we're identifying with Jesus' death and burial, and rise again to walk in newness of life. He changes us. And every time they would see the reflection, they would remember that this was who I was. This is my sin, but it's been cleansed because of the sacrifice and because of the washing. And now I have a new identity and I can enter into the presence of God. I can walk in newness of life. In a couple of weeks, we're going to celebrate baptism. And maybe you have questions about baptism. Would you email me? Because uh, it, it's the greatest moment in the church. Better than any sermon I ever preach is every baptism. I promise you that. Most of you know that by now. So here, here, we'll look at this a little bit more now. But what I want you to do is I hope to just whet your appetite. That God wants you to know him. He wants you to come into his presence and he's continually revealing even in things that we may not even understand because we're so far removed from using it that he was communicating to his people a way for us to come closer to him. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the wonder of how you have come to us, of your desire to dwell in our midst. And Lord, that you fulfilled that in Jesus Christ. Lord, let us not take that for granted. Would you help us to recapture the wonder of who you are and of the privilege that we have because as your word says, because we have such a great high priest, Jesus Christ, let us with boldness come into your presence. Oh, Lord, would you make that the desire of our hearts to, des- to want you, to delight in you so much that we look into your word with eyes of wonder over who you are and what you have done. And it just prompts us to move closer to you, to obey you, to honor you, to bring you glory, or to live for you. Speak to each and every heart today, I pray. In Jesus' name.